It's good to be with you this morning. I don't know everybody here. I know most of you. I don't know what's going on in all of your lives. I know what's going on in many of your lives. And I know that there are some who come here with a heavy heart today. And there are some who come here with great joy today. And there are some who come here just kind of continuing on with their week and everything in between. And I want to say for all of us, it's good that we gather here today. And I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that I believe as we gather together and plant ourselves in God's word, that he feeds us and edifies us. One of our practices as a church is before the sermon, we read through the whole passage that we'll be preaching on. Now, when we've been going through the book of Matthew, it's meant longer passages. And I've chosen to continue doing that while we're in Matthew because I really want you to have heard the whole word of God before I start to try and explain it so that you know what's in here and you know kind of what we're talking about. Because the sermon isn't a performance. It's not a time where you sit and take it in. It's a time where we together dig into God's word and your mind should be actively looking at this passage and hearing what God said. So our passage today is Matthew 23. We're going to read all of chapter 23 and the first two verses of 24. So if you want to open there in your Bibles, it's also on page 828 of the Pew Bible. And uh, we'll read through that together and we'll stand for the reading of God's word. Let's do that. Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? 
And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his altar. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of their righteousness, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape the coming, being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You can be seated as we pray. Father, take your word and plant it deep within us that we might not only hear and see, 
but understand and do. Make us hungry for your word. By your spirit, minister through your word to every point of need that is in this congregation right now. In Christ's name, amen. It was 1920 in Cambridge in England, Cambridge University. And uh, many of the students had experienced the first great war. And there, was, there were a set of vices setting in in the student population. The types of things you would have ex- expected from a bunch of young men who've been out and experienced the horrors of war. And there were two main Christian groups on campus. One was called the Student Christian Movement. It was the bigger of the two Christian organizations. It had a, kind of a worldwide following. There were different student Christian movements all around. And it was the one that, is, that enjoyed the favored status among the faculty in the university. Now, its emphasis was on social action, that we need to be people who are kind of engaging the social issues of our day. And they were willing to fudge or compromise a bit on certain doctrinal things, kind of de-emphasizing perhaps the atoning blood of Christ or the infallibility of Scripture or things like that because they wanted to appeal to the rational mind of that day. So get rid of the rational things and focus on kind of the moral things that we need to be doing together. The other group was called the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union. Now, that's a mouthful, so they called it Kick You for short. It's true. It was a smaller group. Though it had been around longer, it was a smaller group, and it was known for its zeal for evangelization. It was built on a rock-solid defense of the Bible as God's Word and the centrality of the blood of Christ for the atonement. And it was known for its daily prayer meetings that had been taking taking place at Cambridge for over 100 years with a slight interruption during the war. Now, the student Christian movement was organizing a week-long mission. They were bringing in all these religious speakers because they felt that the campus of the university really needed to be reached with the message of what God was calling them to. And they enjoyed support from the administration and from various faculty members, and it was going to be a big deal. And so they approached the Kick You Club and said, we would like you to be part of this because we think we as Christians should be united. Now, this presented a real question for the leadership of Kick You. They had to figure out, do we join in this organization that in some ways believes what we do, but in some ways doesn't? But, you know, they've promised us we could have one of our speakers up on the platform. You know, how do we wrestle with it? So they initially declined, but then they went on to accept the invitation. But they stated one great fear in this mission. And that was that the university, quote, be edified with a code of morals to observe rather than enriched by a new life. You hear that fear that they stated? That the university be edified with a code of morals to observe rather than enriched by a new life. What they were getting after is the difference between man-made religion, which advocates a code of morals to be observed, and true heart change that comes through Christ. Enriched by new life. 
And really that distinction that they had put their finger on the pulse of pervades all of man-made religion from the beginning of time until today. It's a chameleon-like thing, this man-made religion. It's happy taking on the form of Islam, where it says, if you just follow these five pillars and be a good person, Allah will probably accept you. It can take the form of secular humanism, where we say, as long as you're tolerant of others and be yourself, And do no harm to the others. You follow this code of morals. You're good. And you're accepted. And it can take the form of biblical religion. As it did in Jesus' days through the Pharisees and scribes and other religious leaders. This man-made religion had seized upon biblical Christianity... And had started advocating for this list of morals, this to-do list. But the problem, of course, with this man-made religion is that it cannot bring new life. It cannot change the heart. And that has been the problem from the very first day all the way up until our day today. And so Jesus, in our passage, in this section of Scripture, takes aim at the man-made religion as embodied by the Pharisees and scribes. And what he does as he ticks through the problems exposing the errors of man-made religion of the Pharisees is something that we all can learn from. In fact, if you see the traits identified here with the Pharisees in any sort of religious practice, be it called Christian, be it called some other religious group, or whether it be called atheistic or agnostic, if you see these traits, be warned, they are dangerous. So this is Jesus' scathing expose of man-made religion. And it comes in three sections. He begins by addressing his followers, the disciples and the crowds near him. And then he speaks a word to its leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And finally, he says, a word to Jerusalem itself, the people who live under that man-made religion at that time. So let's look at what he has to say. In the first 12 verses, he addresses, it says in verse 1, the crowds and his disciples. Now, Jesus, in addressing them and speaking to them, has some critiques of this man-made religion of the Pharisees and scribes. Look what he says. They are self-exalting. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. Phylacteries were things that the Jewish people would wear that uh, held Scripture in them. They would like wear them on their forehead and things like this. They made their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. So it's this, there's a nature to the religion that even though it's, it's doing all sorts of trying to be good, code of moral things, it ultimately isn't concerned about how God sees me and what he wants. It's ultimately concerned about how am I perceived by others and I want to exalt my position. Now, 
in light of this problem, the self-exalting nature of the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus says three things to his followers. The first thing he says is basically, do what they say, but don't be influenced by them. Do you see that in verse 3? Do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Now let me just kind of explain that for a moment. Uh, Jesus and the scriptures throughout are clear that those who are in positions of authority are to be honored and respected and obeyed. So if that's family authorities, if that's governmental authorities, civil authorities, or if that's religious authorities, we are to respect them and obey them. Now, the Bible always makes clear insofar as what they're calling you to do doesn't cause you to violate or disobey God's word because God is the higher authority. So you follow and obey them insofar as they're not telling you something to do against God's word. And he's calling for the same thing with these religious leaders. Now, Moses's seat as he refers to it, isn't, isn't a, uh, an office or a title we see in the Bible. In fact, scholars don't really know exactly what he's referring to because it's not there in the pages of Scripture. Likely, it's something that the Pharisees called themselves. We sit in Moses' seat, or the scribes call that for themselves. But regardless, they were the respected leaders of that day. And Jesus says, look, we need to follow them. We need to honor them. We need to obey them insofar as they're not going against God's word. And that's how Jesus lived his life. You look. Though when they teach something false, he takes that on. He does obey. Even in the chapters ahead leading up to his crucifixion. He's not overthrowing them. Think about the great reformer. The Protestant. The one, pro, the one who started the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther. Do you know, he started out, he was a leader in the Roman Catholic Church. And as he started to read the Bible, he said, the people need to be able to read the Bible too, because what we're teaching them has nothing to do with what's here in the Bible. And if they can have the Bible, that would be good. And he looked at some of the abuses and excesses of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And he said, this is repugnant. It must be changed. And so he started trying to work from within, respecting the authorities. To bring about change. It was only after the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated him, demanded his death, and so he had to go into hiding that Lutheranism began. So I think that's a good picture of this kind of do what they say. Show honor and respect to them. But the emphasis is even as you do that, don't be influenced by them. Because they are bad news. So even as you have to show a proper respect and honoring to them in their position, do not allow what they're doing and what's going on there to influence you. As they self-exalt, you must do just the opposite. The second thing he says to them, we see in verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi for when you have one teacher and you're all his brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Need to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, this isn't saying that your swim teacher you can't call your instructor. Nor is it saying that you can't call your male parent dad. Okay, that's not the point here. The point is with, with a sense of religious authority. 
those things that belong to God, we should not start to attribute those titles or even uh, those positions of honor to earthly people. Now, if you look at a denomination or religious group that is built on kind of man-made principles, you will often find a series of titles of honor that could in some way be applied to God or to Christ that get attributed to men. And as they move higher up the ecclesiastical chain, those titles get longer and more flowery and more self-important. And the Bible says, have nothing to do with that. Now, I think generally, generally speaking, we as Baptists have done a good job of avoiding some of that. Though I will say, I know it's a point of debate, the title pastor means shepherd. As in the good shepherd. And you've heard me say, if you've been around long, I prefer not to be called by the title pastor. And it's because of this passage. We have one shepherd who is in heaven. Now, I'm not talking about my job description where it says in the bulletin, but how you refer to me. I know many of you are grown up where that was the way you show respect, show honor, like we were talking about earlier too. Uh, the pastor of a church or something like that. Maybe you could use the term brother if you kind of want to keep that going on. Though James is just fine. You can call me James. You can have your kids call me Mr. James or Mr. Seward if that's what you prefer. Though I'm happy with James as well. But we need to be careful that we're not playing into the very thing that Jesus is condemning here. Senior pastor. Hmm. Of course, I read a commentary that gave an extended defense of why pastors shouldn't be included in this denunciation. So I know it's a matter of interpretation, but that is just something on my conscience as I read this. So be careful of these titles that we throw around. If it's something that belongs alone to God, don't start calling people on earth by that title. And the last instruction he gives is really just an echo of the first instruction, but he ends it with that exclamation point in verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Don't be like the Pharisees in their self-exaltation. Yes, we need to show proper deference to them as authorities, but don't allow them to influence you in their self-exaltation. Be people who are humble. Now, let me point out that is only something that can happen if our heart changes. You see, when we pursue religion, our moral code, we can kind of check off our religious boxes and get it right. But we really, if our heart hasn't been changed, our hearts are inclined towards self. And so if the religion actually can't change our hearts then the religion becomes something that even in our own twisted way that maybe is hard to completely grasp starts causing us to do this because we love the opinion of others, because we want to be regarded and esteemed. We want to be thought the upstanding citizen, the good person, the proper Baptist or whatever it is. 
And so we pursue these things without heart change. And it will inevitably cause us to be making ourselves great instead of making ourselves small. Even taking a verse like this, okay, I will be the servant of all so that I can be great. You know, that's how twisted we are in our thinking. The only way this can really happen is if that new life comes into us through Christ. So that's Jesus' opening statement in this scathing expose. He speaks to his followers. And then after that, he announces a series of seven woes against the Pharisees. Now, the word woe is a word that would most typically be used after some great sadness has fallen upon you, a tragedy of sorts. And you would call out, woe, woe, which means alas or how terrible. You've heard it, woe, woe, woe is me, right? That's how it would typically be used. But at times it was used before a tragic event would occur in announcing it. And it would carry with it a great sense of emotion. And it would often be used negatively, like Jesus is using it here. Like destruction is coming and it's going to be terrible. Woe to you in an anticipatory way. And so that's exactly how Jesus used it here. Seven woes, right? Seven, the number of fullness or completion that he announces upon these leaders. So first he speaks to the crowds. Now in the crowd's hearing, he speaks about these Pharisees and scribes. Woe, 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 seven times. Let's look at each woe briefly. The first is there in verses 13 and 14. And the issue here is that they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That is, he's saying, your man-made religion cannot ultimately save. So the doors to the kingdom of heaven, when they follow your religion that you've created, even though it's chameleon, changed its chameleon color to match some elements of the Old Testament, this man-made religion actually shuts the doors to eternity. Why is that? Because if the heart isn't changed of the person, there's still this base of poison, of death, of evil within the person. And so they can try and do good And feel good about their righteous deeds. And do them all the way into hell. So Jesus looks on this situation. He says, whoa, whoa, destruction is coming. And I feel the need for it deeply. The second woe is there in verse 15. And there he speaks about bringing others with them into hell. Now, we talk about proselytes or proselytizing. Maybe you've heard that term. It's almost always used negatively, right? It's bad to proselytize. But the reality is, whatever your belief system, you proselytize. Let's say you have the belief system that everyone should be able to believe whatever they want to believe. Matters of faith are private and personal matters. And we ought not proselytize. We shouldn't try and convince others that our belief system is right. You sit down over coffee with somebody who loves to proselytize, whatever religious 
you know, system they come from. They think they need to make it known. And they start talking to you and they start asking questions. And you have the opportunity to try and convince them that proselytizing is a bad idea. You're going to do it. You are going to proselytize for your belief system. Right? You're going to try and convince them to stop proselytizing because proselytizing is bad. And in doing, you are proselytizing. So the issue is not whether we proselytize. That is to say, the issue is not whether we are trying to convince people to believe something. We're all trying to do that. The issue is, are we trying to convince something to believe something that is true and that is right and that is good? And ultimately, that is good for their souls, good for their eternity. And these Pharisees and scribes, who took great pains to bring people to their system of belief, brought them to a system of belief that led to their damnation. And so Jesus says, Woe, woe. And when you advocate for your puny, man-made religious system, whether it's deistic, theistic, agnostic, atheistic, whatever it is, If you are not building it on what God has revealed and what is true, you're doing the same. Woe. The third woe, you might have noticed, breaks from the formula. It goes on from 16 to 22. All the other woes say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. But here it's woe to you, blind guides. And here he takes issue with this kind of myopic... uh, twisting of little system of rules that they would use to their advantage. Right? So they created this kind of layering of oaths. So if I oath by this over here, it's not really binding. Which they might use kind of in a righteous way, like, oh, oh, you you oath by that. I I think you need to oath by something higher because your word matters. Or they might use it manipulatively, right? Kind of like fingers crossed behind your back. I didn't really mean it. But regardless, it's idiotic. Right? It makes no sense. So you say it's okay to swear by the gold of the temple. That actually is binding. But the temple itself, if you, if you uh, oath by that, it's not. Well, Jesus just points out how silly that is. Gold is all over the place. There's nothing valuable about gold except for that... It's in the temple. It's the temper that makes it valuable. And why does the temple make it valuable? Because he who dwells with the people in the temple, he who dwells in heaven and sits on his throne, ultimately, it's because of who God is. And that's why in Matthew chapter 5, he says, we're not even to be people who are making oaths because God hears it all and everything is heard by God and owed to God. So our yes should be yes and our no should be no. It's silly. And we can read Jesus uh, account of of their oathing system and see the silliness of it. But when you're in the middle of the silliness, you don't see it. And so you think of these communist regimes with their belief system that all people are equal brothers in their kind of atheistic worldview. And yet, somehow, if you were in a position of power... You would have your big palace and your big mansions while all the masses sit in their little high-rise cement apartments. 
It's idiocy. Or idiocy? How do you say that word? (laughs) Or you look today in North America. And rightly, when a little puppy is treated badly or hurt, we become indignant. But we care more about that little puppy than we do about an unborn baby in the womb. It doesn't make sense. Or we rightly talk about the equality of women, and we advocate for that. And yet, this same culture has done more to objectify and sexualize women than perhaps any culture. It doesn't add up, right? It's idiotic. Because they are blind guides. You see, if you are trying to create your own system and and trying to lead, we as humans, by comparison to God's wisdom and insight, are blind. And so whatever we create will inevitably have all sorts of silliness in it that doesn't make sense. If you can just step back and look, the only thing that will truly make sense is what God Almighty has declared. And so, woe, woe to you, blind guides. Then we get to the fourth woe. The one that sits right in the middle of the seven. And now we start to get to the real heart of the matter. They'd come up with a system where they would even tithe the herbs from their garden. That's pretty impressive, right? Jesus didn't say tithing is bad. He didn't say stop doing that. That's good. Hey, Tithe everything. That's good, he says. But he says, look, you haven't dealt with the issues of your heart. Issues of justice and mercy and being faithful to God. You see, man-made religion will always have this nice list of, of things to do. A moral code to be followed, right? And if we check off those things, we can feel good about our religious activity, about our goodness. But, but when it comes to things that really have to flow from our heart, justice, mercy, faithfulness to God, man-made religion ultimately can't change that because it can't bring new life. It can't change the heart. It's nice. Check, check, check. I did it. I did it. I did it. That's what we like. You know, so volunteer in the school. Help the elderly. Be a good neighbor. Lend things freely. Check, check, check. I can do those things. But can I really deal with the heart? And the Pharisees couldn't. Whoa. Woe to them. The fifth woe, there in verses 29 and 30, I'm sorry, 25 and 26, my eyes are going. There in verses 25 and 26 is an extension of that same concept. He uses an image of a cup, a cup polished clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. I was talking to a member of our church and she was 
telling me about a, uh, a time over a decade ago, or about a decade ago, where she was teaching on this very concept to the children of our church. And she brought in a cup that on the outside looked beautiful, and on the inside it was filthy. And she talked about how we as church kids can be experts at this. We know how to do all the right things, check off our religious to-do box. So to the others who are watching, we look nice and righteous. But we know that inside our hearts are wicked. There's something wrong. There's evil desires lurking in there that make me want to do the wrong thing and not the right thing. And as she turned and showed that cup and explained the situation, one of our church kids realized she was talking about her. And that was what led her to turn her life to Christ and let Christ change her heart. That girl is still walking with Christ today. It's an exciting story. This truth that Jesus exposed being used to draw someone to Christ not to that outward religious display, but to true heart change. The fourth woe, sorry, the sixth woe, verses 27 and 28, continues again the same concept, this time talking about tombs. That on the outside, let's make them look nice and uh, septic, you know, clean. Um, not septic. What's the right word there? It is septic. All right, good. Clean. But inside it's full of death. That's what Jesus is saying is going on in all our hearts. That man-made religion can't fix. We can observe a code of morals, the external. But we need new life, right? Now, if you don't believe me, maybe you're a little incredulous. My heart's really not full of death. That's why I do all these good things, right? How can my heart be full of death if I do all these good things? Think, think just for a minute. You are in need of some service. And so you pick up the phone and call the service department. And you're on hold for an inordinate amount of time. Ten whole minutes. And then who picks up the phone? Somebody who you're having trouble communicating with because of the way they speak their English. I know what you're thinking at that time. You're thinking, I'm so proud of this person for working hard to learn English. I want to encourage them today. I want to be a blessing to them and let them know how much I appreciate them working hard where they're taking call after call of angry customer and helping us. No, because there's evil in our hearts. And that might be some small little example that we can kind of brush off. But what about those things that come in your heart that cause you to think about being unfaithful to someone you've made a covenant with? Or cause you to want to destroy the reputation of someone who has hurt you? Look, those are things that are fallen nature They're traits of our fallen nature. They're things that come up out of us because of our fallen nature. They testify to the fact that inside we're full of death. 
And are we content to just whitewash the outside and not really deal with the heart? If so, Jesus announces this woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The last woe is certainly one that is tied specifically to the man-made religion of these Pharisees who had allowed it to come to roost in the Old Testament system of beliefs. Because God had given this Old Testament, the Old Testament's that first like big section of your Bible, right before Matthew, all the books before that. Uh, that's the Old Testament, right? And it was written hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came. And, and God wrote these through the prophets and is an oversummarizing it, but it, it teaches two main truths. The Old Testament teaches two main truths. The first is it shows us how sinful we are as mankind. So it's meant to expose the depths of depravity within our own hearts and how hard it is for us to do righteous things. The other thing it's doing primarily is pointing forward to a coming Savior, a Messiah, an anointed one, a Christ, that would come and deliver us from this bondage to our sin. Pretty much all the prophets come along saying those two things. You guys are a lot more sinful than you think. And there's hope, not because of you, but because of God and what's coming. That's pretty much the message of every prophet that came along. Think think of the temple. The temple's a big deal. We're in the temple right now uh, when Jesus is giving this talk, right? So the temple's a big deal. The temple was something that God brought about, and it taught these two things, right? Because it was the symbol of God's dwelling place with his people. And in this place that was a symbol of God's dwelling place with his people... There was blood sacrifice after blood sacrifice. This is pouring out like a a little, a river of blood pouring from the temple at all times. And, and for, uh, for to have access into this holy place, not every Israelite could. In fact, it was only a certain priesthood could, and he had to go through all of this ritual cleansing. What's all this blood and ritual cleansing doing? It's showing us that we are sinners. And in order to dwell with the Holy God, something has to be done about our sin, right? It's exposing our sin. You smell the blood and the stench of dead animals, and you say, this is because we're sinful. And yet, the same temple pointed forward to one who would come and dwell amongst us. God wouldn't just dwell in a temple with us. He would come and bodily dwell amongst us and be our ultimate provision for peace. Do you see how it pointed for did both of those things the temple did? So here we have the scribes and Pharisees who claim to be experts in this Old Testament and yet they did not see their own sinfulness and brokenness. And when the one long promised the Christ came, they rejected him. So, the very thing that the Old Testament was designed to do, it was failing to do for them because of the way they looked at it. They imposed their man-made religion upon it instead of hearing what was actually said. And so Jesus says, the blood of all the righteous ones who've been slain will be upon you. From Abel to Zechariah. 
Why? They're the ones making monuments to the prophets. They, they stand with the prophets. Oh, yeah? Then why don't you hear the message of the prophets? They called out your own sinfulness and told you to hope in Christ, in God's Christ. No, you actually belong with your fathers. You claim they're your fathers, and you actually are following after them. Why? What was your attitude toward John the Baptist, prophet of God? You delighted that he was killed. What are you going to do with me? You know, your forefathers killed the king's heralds. You are going to kill the king. And then the messengers he would send after, the apostles, a deacon like Stephen, in the synagogues, they would persecute them and even kill them. They were going to reject the message that God had given that could bring new life in favor of a message that allowed for a code of morals. Well, that ends the seven woes. And then Jesus turns his attention to all of Jerusalem. And he speaks to Jerusalem. Have you ever seen a strong man cry? I had an old friend in Texas who told me about how he and his wife had reached a point where their differences were irreconcilable. They were at odds with one another, and it was just bad news. They decided they needed to get a divorce. And he went to his dad, who was a strong man. And he knew it was going to be bad. He was expecting maybe a a Bible-thumping lecture, a stern rebuke. But he says when he told his dad, all his dad did was break down and weep. And as he sat and watched his dad a strong man, weep. God started using that in his own mind. And his thinking changed. And it was a turning point in their marriage. And when I was talking to him, they'd been married for years. We're not told that in this passage Jesus is crying. So we don't know whether he was But if you hear the deep emotion, the raw pathos, as I read these words, you'll sense the heart that God Almighty Jesus has for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. See, your house is left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Strong, strong renunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees, but when he speaks of Jerusalem, there is a broken heart. 
He longs to spread his wings and welcome them in. And yet he must abandon them because they have rejected him. You see, Christ came offering this new life. Indeed, the message laid out in the Old Testament Scriptures was promising and pointing forward to this new life. So the prophets had proclaimed and had been rejected. And Jesus saying, I long for you to come and know the rest of my wings, the shelter of my wings, the goodness of really God's religion, God's truth. But you reject it in favor of this. And his heart breaks. I wonder if there are people here today who hear Jesus offering with his wings spread wide the shelter and rest that comes from trusting him and yet are so committed to their code of morals that they can observe that they're unwilling to come to what Jesus offers. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That brings Jesus to the end of his expose on man-made religion. And he walks out of the temple. Now, this is interesting. He walks out of the temple, and as he's doing so, his disciples point out, this is Herod's temple. It was a really beautiful, ornate temple. They point, they point out to him. They're kind of talking at the buildings. And Jesus says, 24-2, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this is fascinating. Remember what had been going on in the temple. He cleared the temple. Why? Because this temple had become kind of the exhibit A in this man-made religious system of the Pharisees and scribes. And he comes clearing it out. He curses a fig fig tree as kind of a parable of what's going on with his temple. It's supposed to have life, but it doesn't. It's supposed to have food, but it doesn't. Then Then he announces these woes upon its leaders and then he walks out of the temple and he says, and it's not going to be standing anymore. Do you see what he's doing? He is walking out of the vacuous man-made religion and saying, it's empty. It can't do anything for you. I declare its destruction. I am walking away from it. It's done. If you have been in bondage to this, I gotta hit my religious to-do list in order to make God happy or win the approval of man or to be thought a good person, I gotta check it. I gotta check it. I gotta check it. And you realize it's not doing anything for your heart and your soul. Jesus walks up and he says, it's done. It's over. Not a stone will be left upon another. It is going to be wiped out entirely. And... In AD 70, about 30 years after Jesus says these words, the temple fell, completely destroyed, no stone left upon another. And to this day, there is no temple rebuilt. It's done. But remember also, and here's the amazing part, what the temple had been designed by God to do. 
to point forward to one who could come and allow a holy God and a sinful people to dwell together. Why do you think this statement about the temple is said in the same week that Jesus is going to die for our sins and rise up in victory over the grave? Has the temple really been destroyed? No. That brick and mortar temple was only there as a signpost to point forward to Christ. So Christ doesn't just say, yes, this man-made religion, it's done, it's desolate, I walk away from it. He also steps right here and offers the new life the heart changed, the forgiveness of sins that the temple is designed to point to all along. That's how the story ends. You can have man-made religion that offers you slavery to its code of morals to be observed ultimately can do nothing for your heart. Or you can have Jesus who offers you forgiveness from your sins and freedom in Him to walk in His ways and the goodness of His kingdom. Jesus' strong renunciation of this is not because He's full of hate and spite. Though those are strong words. But it's because if He's full of love. And he doesn't want us to be people who walk the broad road that leads to hell thinking we've got it right because I'm a good neighbor and my heart's full of death. He wants us to know Christ and to know the freedom he brings, the forgiveness he brings. And he wants us to give ourselves in service to this kingdom and not that. Let's pray. Father, may this church, may we as a people never fall into the trap of offering man-made religion propped up with scriptural truths. May we not be a people who edify with a code of morals to be observed. But may we be people who enrich by offering new life. And Father, if there are those here who have not yet embraced Christ and what he offers, I pray that you would move in their hearts by your spirit and help them to know the goodness that can be theirs in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.